Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast on the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have over 50 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 4th of October 2021 and this is episode 225. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to author and historian Christina Holstein. This is the second of two podcasts I recorded with Christina looking at the battles of Verdun during the Great War. In this episode, we examine the French offensive in August 1917 in the Verdun sector and the battlefield today. Christina spoke to me over the interweb from her home in Kent. Hi Christina, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. Can you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War and in particular Verdun? Well, I suppose it's one of those things that's just a series of coincidences really. I was always interested in military history. I have been since um, my earliest memories. I'm not from a military family, so I don't know where it comes from. And I was living abroad. I was living in Luxembourg at the time. I lived there for 30 years and Luxembourg was 60 miles from Verdun. So one to, to know more about war in general, uh, I thought, well, you know, the Western Front's only down the road there. I'll go and have a look at that, see what there is. And the thing about Verdun is there is an enormous amount of physical remains still there. So you can actually see things that I, I always wanted to see when I was a child. You know, you go and see a castle and you think, well, it's just ruins. You know, I want to know what it looked like. If you go to Verdun, you can see what things look. The forts are there, the field work, the trench systems are still there, you know, the machine gun post bunkers, and that's what's really fascinating to me. You can actually, you're not just walking ground that has been returned to plough, and you, you know where things happened, but you can't see it, and you have to imagine it. Here you don't, uh, you can actually go and stand there and look at the places where things happened and think, goodness me, this, this and, and it must have looked, I can't say it looked like this, but these remains, these physical remains are still here a hundred years, more than a hundred years after battle and it just it was just a fascinating place it was only 60 miles down the road from me i had small children at the time i couldn't go away overnight or for long periods but i could go uh, for a day and in fact used to take the family with me they all liked it and uh, we could walk in the forest on the marked paths and see what was there it made a good family day out sounds strange to many people i suppose but that's how it was and it, the more it's like everything the more you know the more interesting it becomes and so you keep on going back i got to know local people local doing research on the ground and it just grows from there. In this programme we're going to talk about the battles around Verdun in 1917 and what the battlefield is like today. Could you start by giving our listeners a brief overview of what happened in Verdun in 1916? Well the Battle of Verdun was launched by Germany on the 21st of February 1916 with the aim of inflicting uh, a very short and very sharp blow on French that would bring about military and political collapse in short order so that peace uh, so that armistice discussions could begin and then uh, Germany could then deal with Russia also by offering peace overtures and then of course use its uh, troops on the Western Front to deal with the British well it failed uh, the battle which was intended in fact originally in the German planning to start 12th February end with a victory parade in Verdun on the Kaiser's birthday on the 29th in fact started on 21st February and was basically called off on the 8th 
18th December. So it was a 300-day slogging match that it became. The French uh, were pushed back um, at the most about two and a half miles from the, the German lines and then by the end of the year had managed to recoup about four and a half to five miles that and um, casualties at the end of the year for for both for on both sides are about something over 750,000 killed, wounded, missing. So that's it, it, they aren't quite the same, but there were slightly more German casualties. But if you put them both together, something over 750,000 killed, wounded. And missing. So what happens in the Verdun sector for the, the sort of first eight months of 1917? Well, 1917. I mean, at, at the start of the year, both sides have to start digging in it because the French uh, operation of 16th, 17th takes them up to new lines. They have to recreate new positions for themselves. The Germans have been pushed back. They have to recreate new positions for themselves. And so at first, they're, well, basically at first, for the first three months, they're just trying to buy because the winter was exceptionally cold and everything has been destroyed because they are both holes trying to create positions in an area of the battlefield has been fought among. So, you, you know, they're, they're trying to, to make holdable positions, def- defensible positions on both sides in what space uh, one uh, observer called it an ocean of ice. And so survival is the thing, first cast. And then you get into March, and uh, this is, I'm talking about the right bank, eastern side. On the western side of the Meuse, though it was slightly different, but on the eastern side of the Meuse, basically the Germans start to, to move again with some uh, small counteroffensives, limited in March 1917, but there there isn't there is no attempt to launch a major offensive on either side to get back the ground lost. Verdun has become by then a second front for the Germans, and and really all they can do is hold it. And the orders are to abandon in, to to retreat tactically in in the front if if faced with uh, a major French offence, they were to order attack the, those. Are, so for the first few months, nothing. so in August. 18, the French army uh, decides to launch an attack to recapture some of the lost ground it uh, ceded in 1916. What was the purpose of this attack and why did they launch it in, in August of 1917? Well, the planning for 1917 actually starts at the end of 1916 because the when the German when the French have been successful in 16, obviously that boosts the ego so they start looking forward and thinking, right, what can we do? And the, the plan that is developed is to break out of the salient at the Dun and a breakout to the to the northeast, and that's going to be a major offense. In fact, if if it were the, in one of its uh, iterations, it in fact involves two arms. So, but this is only a, only in the planning stage, and it all goes wrong because in uh, April the offensive launched by General Nivelle, who has become commander in chief. General Nivelle commanded the two successful counteroffensives that were done in October and December 1916. As a result of which, he was given the job of commander-in-chief of the armies in France, he replaced General He then planned an offensive in April on the Chemin des Dames, which was intended to break through the Germans. And not only did it fail, but it failed with very serious And within quite a short time, mutinies began to break out. He was replaced by the man who had been so successful at the Dames, General Pétain, as commander-in-chief. And General Pétain, of course, took over at a time when he had to restore morale, he had to and he had to decide what they could do, what the, what the French army could do in order to avoid apps and also to hold the line until the Americans come in and help to show shoulder blow. So when he, 
when he when he came in and he took over, he he said we cannot we cannot uh, take on this plan for the breakout sale because it's too much for the French time. But we can have a limited operation which will create which will take back a tactically important position and create the jump off line for next year for when the American can help show the boat. So the the offensive plan for August is to take to take to push the line north to take back a series of high points which will force the Germans to pull their artillery. If the French are going to try breaking out of the sailings at any time, they have to make sure that the German gun lines are far enough back not to be able to disrupt the French supply lines and lines of communication coming in for done. So the aim of this is to is to push the German lines far enough back to 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 prevent them from from doing prevent them from disrupting the, the supply lines coming into Verdun in preparation for another big push in the team when the French army is stable again and the Americans are there. So this is planned for the middle of 1917, roughly speaking, July. Uh, it was postponed until August, partly because of bad weather, partly because the Germans attacked on the left bank and did a lot of damage to one of the French positions there and, and that, that ground had to be recouped and some of it was retaken, some of it wasn't. But there was a, it was it was postponed until August, and finally uh, the French jumped off on the 20th of August. I think another reason for the postponement is the logistics of the operation, because this operation, in the end, used 420,000 men, which was 16 and a half percent of the forces available to the French in France, which is an enormous number. 30 percent of the heavy guns, 18 percent of the field guns. I mean, logistically, it's the most extraordinary operation. Now, tell us how this operation went. What did the French managed to achieve? It, it it mostly went very well. It was launched on the 20th of um, August and in most place, in most parts of the of the of the line, by the end of the 21st, the, the final objectives had been achieved. Uh, there was one part of the line where where that took another couple of extra days on the uh, over on the, the far side of the river, the western side. Um, but basically uh, by the 23rd the, the French were in position apart from one place. There was, there was one place, there's a, a hill called the, the French call Hill 344, uh, where the Germans held a big chunk of their very strong front line there, and the French were determined to have it for various reasons, and it took them another two months. So fighting, in fact, the, the great bulk of, the, of the, the offensive was over on the 21st of August. There was another push to try and get a couple of places on the 26th that were not successful, and then uh, there was this fighting on Hill 344 that then went on into November. There was a hilltop that they didn't try fighting for, um, right over on the French right flank, where fighting went on until the next year. But it was very local. I mean, I say very local. It's all right for me 100 years on to say it was very local. It's pretty terrible when you read it, but it's limited to one particular area. But basic, this offensive is the 20th and 20th. So why don't we know about it? Because it seems, because the sort of common wisdom I've always sort of heard is that the French army was mutinying in, mutinying in the spring and summer of 1917, and they only resumed defensive action, you know, in 1918. But this is obviously runs completely counter to that uh, historical narrative. Yes, yes I, I don't know why people don't hear about it. I think it's because the, the attention of the world has been on for done in 1916. And when you get to the end of 1916, I mean, basically, with, I think with so much 
much you read. It basically stops after October and Fort Dormore turns. To, um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's I I think it's just that people haven't haven't realised anything happened there. I don't think. And I think the the idea of the mutinies gives people get the idea that because there was mutiny in French, and perhaps it's mutiny in some units, isn't the entire army? Maybe it did. There were some units that were affected at Verdun, but it was nothing. I I don't get the impression from the research I've done. Second Army does in danger of failingly. But I think it's just that so much of what one reads is, is sort of almost just headlines. You know, you've got the Battle of Verdun and then you've got French mutinies and, you know, and then the attention, I think, goes on to then the Third Battle of Ypres, 1917, and people don't know what's happening elsewhere. But the, the 1917 operation is the most extraordinary piece of just organisation. When you when you consider the, the, like, the number of guns, for example, that they've got there, when you consider the, the effort involved in bringing up those guns, the roads laid, the railways laid, the horses needed, the men needed, the amount of food everybody consumes, the amount of fodder for the animals. It's quite extraordinary. And the supply lines, of course, go right back deep into France to the yeah, to agriculture, to industry, to, to imports. It's quite extraordinary when you, when you start to, to think of not just the front of the operation, which is the men actually going forward, but the back of it. One of the things that uh, General Pétain was, was, uh, is very known for is his not only his care for the men but his actual understanding and one of the things that struck me reading the the war diaries and regimental histories here is is how the men are so delighted when they get they get to the to their final objective which on the 20th of august in some cases is achieved quite quickly very clearly actually um and the rations come up and not only the rations come up straight away but the post comes up and so they can stand there in their new position and they're reading their post and there are decorations in the field so there's immediate reward it he he restores morale i mean he shows the french army not just here but also in the operation on the schmedidam at fort malmizu that the french army can fight he's showing them that they can fight they're proud of it and one of the things that strikes me very reading again the 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 war diaries in 1917 how uh forget about being nice and gentlemanly to the enemy you know we don't care it's just get them out they've got to go that's it no quarter was given no quarter was given you read it time and time again we don't care just get rid of it now turning to the battlefield today you've written a large number of battlefield guides on the Verdun sex which cover obviously 1916 and 1917 what do you think are the most important sites and which ones would you recommend that people visit to get a sort of a, a flavor of the story of Verdun during sort of 1916 and 1917 well it's a difficult battlefield because it's covered in trees the French at the end of the war the government said nobody should live there again so they the villages that were destroyed in the fighting have not been rebuilt and um, it returned to nature and then there were after after about 10 years there were certain sites that were cleared and then replanted deliberately so it's it's very difficult to understand what where you are why it matters why this particular fort was built here or the field work was there or why people fought for this hill or that hill so there's, it depends on how long you've got and whether you actually, whether, it's, for example, if you've only got a day, you would have to see the the Memorial, Fleury Memorial, which is, uh, I call it Fleury Memorial Museum, 
um, which will take you quite a while and has a lot of very interesting stuff in it. Um, Fort Douaumont, uh, some people will want to see the Trench of Ben. Uh, the Osseur, you must go in the Osseur, the memorial to the men, the French memorial to the men who fought the Battle of the Dun. In the chambers under the Osseur, uh, there are the, the lo- what I call the loose bones, that is the, the men whose remains never received on the burial, uh, and the, the, the bones that were found scattered here and there, gathered up and placed in the chambers under the ossuary. Um, the, just close to the ossuary, there's a, a very, very battered fieldwork called the Tiumor Fieldwork, which is of immense importance in June 1916, May and June 1916. And further down the same river, the Quaiter Fieldwork. The problem with all these places is that when you get there, there is very little information. So if you don't already know about it, 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 if you think, oh, well, I'll, you know, there'll be something there, I can, you know, read a signboard or something, but you might find a signboard and you might not. Also, Fort Vaux which is some distance away from the other side. So um, unless you're walking from one side to another, then you have to get in the car and drive all the way around. But if you've only got a day, that's about all you can do. Now, if you've got two days, you could go across to the other side of it, to the left bank, and uh, look at the, there's two memorials there, the famous the, the Statue of Death on the, the Morton, and uh, there's another memorial on Hill 304. The problem with both of those is, again, there is no information. Um, you must go if you've got two days to the Ouvrage de la Falouse, which is the last of the permanent work to be built around Verdun, built in 1906, about uh, it's at a place called Belleray, three kilometres south of Verdun. Absolutely brilliantly restored. It's the most wonderful place. If you've got a car and you fancy driving out a little bit, then there's the site of one of the destroyed villages, uh, a place called Bézonvaux, absolutely beautifully restored. There is information, and there's a little walking trail you could do. Um, in Verdun itself, uh, the military cemetery at the Faubourg Pavé has the bodies of the men who were not chosen to be the unknown warrior. There's a central cross, and these men are buried around it. I think that's a very moving sight. And then go down the the Sacré. The Bois Sacré Memorial has a lot of information now. And carry on down the Bois Sacré to a place called Souy, S-O-U-I-L-L-Y. Um, that is where Second Army had headquarters were. And in the town hall at Suyi, it was General Pétain's headquarters. It then became the headquarters of all the other commanders of Second Army right through into September 1918, when it became the headquarters of the American Expeditionary Force in General Pershing. And there's a very nice exhibition permanent on the ground floor. It's a historic building anyway. Uh, but that's uh, if you've got two days, then I think that's probably a nice thing to do on two days. The thing you have to remember about that area is um, uh, petrol stations, fuel stations are rather few and far between, and so is food. So uh, you you know, of course, best to take some of it because you might not find the rest. And what about German positions uh, round uh, the battlefield? Is there much left of their sort of preparations for the offensive? Oh, you've got to go deep in the woods. I mean, yes, deep in the woods. Um, but the, the trouble is, uh, the cemetery, there are German cemeteries um, which are outside the main battlefield. Um, I think I'm right in saying that the only German uh, cemetery, I'm going to use that word for one or another one, is in Fort Dürmer. There were German, a lot of, an awful lot of Germans killed in a terrible explosion in Fort Dürmer in May 1916, who were buried uh, in one of the old ammunition shafts. 
shouts, and there's a memorial to them in the forties. God is a general. Um, the others are all outside, further north. I'm trying to think of, of anything, anything you know, easy to get to. I could say that you know, those are German positions. I mean, there are yes, there are, but they're buried in the woods. So you, you would you would really need to walk. Oh, you could go. There's a there's a there's a place. Oh, that's rather nice. There's a place called Camp Margare. There is a there's a gun pit, um, a big German gun pit for a, a 38 centimeter naval gun at a place called Duze, D-U-Z-E-Y. That's one of the guns that fired on Dormont. And uh, there is not very far away the remains of um, a German experimental concrete station uh, at a place known as Camp Margare. Margare spelled M-A-R-G-E-E-R-R-E. That's a really fascinating site and lots of information there. And there's plenty of information done either as well. Uh, those are sites that are easy to get to and uh, and informative, um, and you can you can drive to them. There's a very nice little German, uh, a, a very nice little. I'm going to call it a museum. There's a there's a little village called Jeancrey, but G-I-N-C-R-E-Y, which is east of Verdun. And on the walls of the the little town hall there, on two sides, there is actually an external collection. So it's very carefully, you know, it's all barred off in there. But that's really very interesting, and that is that that's basically German. There were a lot of Germans in the area, German camps, German cemeteries, and so there's a lot of a, a, a lot of German remains found in the field. I don't just by that; I don't just human physical as well, gravestones, and rifles, and that sort of thing. And and one of the local farmers um, has done a very beautiful and, and most interesting exhibition on the walls of the museum there. And again, there's the the barrel of an enormous, another nice place uh, to go to and and have a you know have a look at those. And finally, I, I suppose I should just uh, give a statutory health warning. Is there anything people should avoid doing on the battlefield? Obviously, it's probably still full of live ammunition and um, other problems. And should we be aware of any aspects of French law about removing bits of the battlefield and bringing it home? Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, don't remove anything, the answer to that. Um, yes, don't go off path. I mean, there are paths and there are marked paths all over the battlefield. Uh, stay on the path. Uh, don't go off path um, and don't pick anything up. Yes, there is live ammunition. Uh, there, there are human remains. Um, particularly at the, I say particularly at the moment, there is a lot of forestry work going on because unfortunately the spruce trees have been affected by an, um, an epidemic of bark beef, and the only way of dealing with it appears to be to cut the whole lot down and clear absolutely everything. So there are large areas of battlefield being cleared, which means that heavy logging equipment, of course, is churning up the soil. This is very tempting to some people to go and see what they can find, and the only answer is don't. Um, for, I mean, obviously anything like even if you think it might not be live, is is far too dangerous to, to touch. And the and the French legislation is is very heavy, comes down very heavily on anybody found taking stuff away, um, you know, picking it up, having it in the car, and it's just it's it's not worth trying. So don't and don't do it. Quite apart from anything else, it's dangerous. Um, so don't do it. And finally, where can people find out more about your writings and your battlefield guides to Verdun? Well, they're in a series called Battleground Europe, published by. 
my pen and saw. Um, there are six of them now. The My 1917 book came out just before Christmas. Um, that, that's, where to, that's where you'll find them. They're at you know, pen and sword. I mean, they have their own website, but they're also on sale. At, uh, I'm sure you'll find them wherever. And, and I, I hope people enjoy them. And if anybody wants to get in touch with further questions about what they might go and see or you know, requests for what they should read, um, I'm always happy to answer questions about the done. Christina, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Russman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>